in the room, I am Ryan Flurry, and with me is my host with the most, Rob Minot. Why, hello there. You're putting a lot of pressure on me, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> didn't realize I had the most. You do. I thought I had a lot, but I didn't think I had the most. Yeah. This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, hey, my name is Rob Minot, and uh, joining me today in the anti-gloom Zoom room, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hello, everybody. Mr. Cowbell. And that's it. Just two of us today. Yep. Uh, yes. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty well. Uh-huh. Another, another couple weeks and i will be on vacation so looking forward to that are you having a staycation pretty much i think we're going to do a couple day trips with my sister-in-law and her brother and her husband right um but yeah sticking around for the most part yeah it makes me wonder what a lot of people are doing i know that uh some of the people at work were talking and uh i mean they've had to like cancel one one has had to cancel like an italy trip oh wow and uh i'm, I'm sure that's that's pretty common right people you know, generally plan these things like a year in advance. So I'm sure a lot of people lost out on some uh, some vacations this year for sure. Well, and I was talking to my wife yesterday and she was reading a news report about all these planes that have been grounded for the last four or five months. You know, think of the maintenance that's going to have to be done, the upkeep. You know, you got gaskets and stuff that are drying out and oil that's been sitting there and not moving through engines. Like there's going to be some major issues when they do start flying again yeah but anywhere for a while <laughs> yeah you know there's nothing wrong with a good staycation i've had staycations before and there's it can be it can be fun well there's definitely you know if you look around if you look into it there's a lot to do in the lower mainland where we are anyway you know that doesn't have to cost a lot of money you know there's things we've never i've never done since i've lived here i've never been to science world um, I've been to the aquarium. I've never been out to the zoo in Abbotsford. I don't even know if it's still there. Um, you know, there's things I've just never done, and I've been here many years. Yeah, see, there you go. There you go. And you can always, like, I know it doesn't really feel the same, you know, especially when you're still at home or whatever, but, you know, go, go rent a hotel or something. Go, <laughs> go stay in a different part of the city. Just hope they're cleaning it. <laughs> and I'm assuming hotels are still fine right i, I would know. assume Actually, so maybe you know, maybe not huge, i haven't even thought of that huge vacancies because nobody's traveling hmm hmm mm-hmm. oh well yep first world problems uh hey uh what uh what are what do we happen to be doing today today we are speaking with josh summers and melina nathaniel from national captioning canada Ooh, hey, cool. Yeah, we've been talking about getting somebody from, from about closed captioning for a while now, so. For a couple of years, <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a while. It is, yeah. So I'm looking forward to this because there's so much, I think, not we just so many... the technology that's involved, but just the whole process. You know, yeah, you... that will be interesting. You know, the fact that it's such an old technology and it's been around for so long and sort of ubiquitous at this point, um, yeah, I think I feel like it's something that a lot of people take for granted. So it'll be interesting to see, like, peek, peek in behind the curtain and get a view of, of just how the process works and how intensive it is. Fascinating. Yeah, no doubt. Cool. Well, that will be interesting. Uh, hey, you know what? Hey, I, I want to talk to you a little bit before we dive into that, though. Uh, I saw an article online just uh, today um, that I thought was interesting. Um, and that's just because you sent it to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the guy. But, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, so check this out. So the, the headline is student designs a handheld robotic guide dog, that's in quotes, to help support people with visual impairments who are unable to house a real animal. So let me just take you through this, through this and uh, I want to get your input on this. So a student has designed a handheld robotic guide dog to help support people with visual impairments who are unable to house a real assistance animal. Louisborough University design engineer Anthony Camus was inspired to develop the device by responsive virtual reality gaming controllers. Dubbed Thea, after the titan goddess of light in Greek mythology, the prototype can replicate the key functions of a real guide dog. The voice-activated device can program quick and safe routes to given destinations using real-time online data, much like cars, sat-nav, and onboard sensors. Force feedback delivered through Thea's handle then helps direct the user, creating a sensation that the designers say is similar to the pull of a guide dog's leash. If developed, the Thea device could provide people with visual impairments with a mobility solution that is 10 times cheaper than keeping a guide dog. Thea is a portable and concealable handheld device that guides users through outdoor environments and large indoor spaces with very little input. Using a special control movement gyroscope, which are typically found in the attitude control systems of spacecraft, Thea can gently move the user's hands and physically lead them to their desired destination. In addition, the device has been designed to be able to process real-time online data, such as, for example, weather or the traffic density of pedestrians or vehicles, in order to guide users accurately and safely to their destination. Mr. Camus says that Thea will be able to help people with visual impairments tackle specific interactions such as elevators, stairs, and shops. It will also have a fail-safe procedure for high-risk scenarios such as crossing busy roads, pushing the user back into manual mode similar to using a cane. Although the Thea project is still in its infancy, Mr. Camus says that the potential to develop the prototypes into commercial devices is there. Quote, the main intention was never to replace guide dogs, but instead to provide an alternative means of giving enhanced mobility options to visually impaired people, he explained. So, for example, people who live in high-rise blocks who can't afford dogs. At about 10% of the cost of a guide dog, it aims to be a more affordable solution for people who can't get their hands on them. The article goes on, but that's the gist of it. So, first of all, clickbait article, holy cow, really... <laughs> has nothing to do with the idea of a robotic guide dog at all. This is just basically another haptic mobility aid. Yeah. You know, when you when you read the words they're portable and concealable, you know, I you know, I think the technology is fascinating. Um, you know, you're not gonna get your cane stuck in the crack of a sidewalk. Having a real guide dog, you don't have to worry about, you know, with with a robot guide dog, you don't have to worry about vet bills. If it's raining. Yes, I would say that if if someone did develop an actual robotic guide dog, then yes, I could see I could see this to be like I like first of all, the, the title of this article is completely misleading because I don't even know why the, the term the, the word robotic guide dog is even in this article at all because it's it's by no means a robotic guide dog. Uh, describe what it looks like. It's basically a hand controller. It looks like, uh, well, I mean, obviously, and you haven't seen it, but in with VR with VR sets, um, there are these two things that you hold in your hand that are kind of like, uh, kind of like controllers. Right. That's essentially what it is. It's just so basically, this is like a haptic. Oh, okay. So it's not even like a dog or no. A, it's a nothing leash, like a handle you hold on to, like the harness on a guy dog. It's not no. Even no, it, oh. somewhere, somewhere, somehow the author, the author of this article just like keyed into the fact that, ooh, this is like a robotic replacement or this is like some sort of a high tech replacement for a guide dog. And even though after investigating, it was like because this this article says right in it, the developer says this by no means would replace a guide dog like by no means. It's just a haptic. It's just another haptic mobility like, aid that yeah. they're trying to develop that would augment something yeah. like having a cane or having a dog tricky buggers <laughs> i'm telling you man clickbait articles are all over the place it's very annoying i, I really really hate online journalists well you know if they could take that technology that sat nav technology with the sensors and gyroscopes and stuff and put it into 
some sort of animatronic or whatever the word is, robot guide dog. Yeah, we're so, <laughs> that would be cool. We're, be we're, yeah, I'm sure I'd be, I'd be all over that too. I'd just get one just for fun. <laughs> well, think about it. They got walks. Roombas, the robot vacuums that you just will map out your living room or your floor plan and go to work, go to town. So I, I don't know why we're not seeing more. Yeah, because, well, I mean, I, you know, maybe once we get, you know, driverless cars uh, off the ground and get those established, maybe something something akin to that then would be some sort of a, quote, driverless thing, mobility thing that you could use along, say, sidewalks or something that would be autonomous. I don't know. I don't know. I've, we're We're a long ways from that. But what I find interesting about this device, so it's again, you know, it's it's another haptic, right. uh, haptic attempt at something like a smart cane. Um, but I feel like they're already developing. The, the, I mean, there's a few. There there is actually smart canes out there that so have this built-in functionality built right into the cane. Correct? Yeah, there's the WeWalk. Um, there's a couple other smart canes out there, but the WeWalk I think is the the most recent. Um, innovation of a smart cane but looking at these hand controllers so so I guess they're sending out sensors to detect obstacles and objects in your path and do you have do you have one in each hand because if you do then it kind of defeats the purpose of having your hands free to open doors and no I don't get the sense I sense it's it's a one-handed device okay um, it doesn't go into the actual technology that it uses. Right. I'm looking at it. It looks like there is either infrared, but also the article talks about a gyroscope. Yeah. So maybe it links these two technologies to sort of, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Yeah. I think we've read before, though, that infrared doesn't work in the rain. Uh, yeah. Or it could be, I, I'm only guessing it's infrared. I don't know. It looks like there's a sensor in the front of this thing. Uh, it, could, it could be infrared. It could be ultrasonic. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't right. know. And the, and the article doesn't really go into it all that much because it sounds like it's still in its infancy. Right. Um, I mean, it's not even to the, I don't think, to the prototype stage yet. But yeah, I mean, here it is. This is a quote for it from the developer. The main intention was to never replace guide dogs, but instead to provide an alternative means of giving enhanced mobility options to visually impaired people. Right. So screw you, author of this article, who <laughs> decided to still put robotic guide dog in the title of your article because you know it would get more clicks. Yep. Well, he got me. Yes. Yes, he did. Um <laughs> Yeah, it. so it's interesting. Well, it's nice. I mean, listen, any anytime anybody's working on any sort of mobility solution um, and pushing the technology forward and trying some new things, we got to give them props, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. But I don't know. Haptics, I just, we did, they just haven't cracked the code on yet. We keep saying that over and over again, but it, it's, a, it's, it's tough. Yeah. And especially yeah. with something as mobility, which is both dangerous and... Um, Hard to really work out all the variables that could come up in order to make something that would be really safe and really efficient that beats like, something but, like a dog. Yeah, and give you like a 360 degree uh, sensory field, right? You know, having something on your left is okay. Having something on your right is okay. But, you know, I'd kind of like to know what's in front of me. Um, you know, 10 feet, 6 feet, 3 feet, you know, away from me as I approach. Um, but we'll get there eventually in the future in the far-flung future in which yep. we'll all be on the spacecraft to mars by then anyways and then it'll be a whole new thing then we'll have to develop some sort of a mobility aid for low gravity grab anti-gravity boots wait anti-gravity boots no and gravity boots gravity boots okay yeah because they're gonna be lower gravity you're gonna want gravity boots if you put low gravity with anti-gravity boots then you're gonna get shot into space <laughs> This is why you need me on the spaceship, man. <laughs> I've watched enough sci-fi. I know these yes. things. Hi, everyone. This is Steve from Canadian Assistive Technologies, and this is a shameless plug. 
Tablet-based magnification solutions have really taken off over the past couple of years. Products like the HumanWare Connect 12 have been extremely popular. Now we have a few different tablet-based systems to go along with the Connect 12. The Connect 12 is based on an Android tablet, which can be great for places using Google Classroom services, but sometimes you need a tablet with a bit more punch. The Mercury 12 from TriSight and the Magnalink Tab from Low Vision International have similar functionality to the Connect 12, but both are based on the Microsoft Surface tablet, a full-blown Windows computer. If you're looking at a tablet-based system, you can look at all three on our website at www.canastech.com. Joining us now are Josh Summers and Melina Nathaniel from National Captioning Canada. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, we've been, uh, we've sort of talked about, about captioning on and off for, for quite a few years, actually, since we've been doing the show. We never really had anybody on to talk a little bit about, about the process and, and how it all works. Um, so we were kind of excited to, to get you guys on the show. Um, so why don't we just start there and just give us a little bit of an idea of what you guys do, and then we'll maybe dive in a little bit to the actual process. So we've been in business for 30 years. We were uh, the first company to actually start live closed captioning in a broadcast context in Canada, and that was in the late 80s. Um, we are the largest Canadian-based closed captioning service provider in the country. Uh, we have about 90, uh, between 90 and 95 captioners at any given time working for us. And uh, the bulk of our work is to provide closed captioning services in the broadcast context. Uh, but we're seeing more and more growth in areas like Zoom meetings in the private um, sector for not-for-profits in terms of streaming events. Uh, we also do work in the post-secondary uh, setting for deaf and hard of hearing students who need that extra support during lectures. And um, we also do captioning in uh, for governments. So House of Commons and provincial legislative assemb assemblies and, and the like. So um, we, most of our work is in the live context. In other words, it's sort of real-time captioning. You're, listening to the spoken word and our captioners are transcribing it into the written form. And then we also do post-production captioning where we uh, provide captioning uh, in a more sort of formal way for documentaries, films, videos, and things like that. You know, it's interesting, you know, I'm totally blind, but haven't always been. And I remember being able to see, you know, captioning scrolling across the screen um, growing up and doing some digging through your website, it really looks like captioning has continued to grow and evolve. So you know, let's start with the real-time captioning. How is that accomplished? Well, I'll let Josh speak to that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I suppose fundamentally there are two kind of primary methods of generating closed captions. You can either use human beings uh, which is the, the dominant method still, but um, AI is now playing a part. Uh, so uh, automatic speech recognition software is now kind of coming into the mix a little bit. Um, as far as the human beings are concerned, uh, stenography or court reporting is one method of transcribing the spoken word at speed. Um, the other is using voice recognition software, so speech-to-text software, uh, which is uh, less, perhaps less well-established in, in Canada than, than stenography, but in, in other parts of the world, it's uh, been around for probably a couple of decades now. Uh, but in, in, in both cases, with, with stenography and voice captioning, the job is the same, essentially. You have a, a person listening to a soundtrack uh, to a program and in real time they are transcribing as close to verbatim as they can what they hear, uh, including uh, not just dialogue but also uh, kind of non-speech uh, elements that are significant to the program. And just to that point, one of the, one of the things that um, are, that's limiting in um, artificial intelligence speech recognition 
um, software, the automated stuff that you see, say, if you're watching a YouTube video, mm -hmm. is that type of software doesn't um, have the capacity or ability to insert punctuation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes right. context, you know, if it's pair the fruit or pair the two people, <laughs> it, right. gets, it, gets, it gets it wrong. Um, you know, the human brain is hard to replicate in that context. I don't know, you know, mm -hmm. if it ever will be able to replicate that. But when you see those automated captions, you know, the wrong word might come up, definitely no punctuation. So it's sometimes very difficult to follow. And some people's voices actually um, translate better through automated speech recognition software than other people's voices. And so, you know, the, the quality varies from one person to the next. Yeah, I know, you know, I, I've, I've my, my screen reader, because I'm blind, you know, reads to me the captions on some of the YouTube videos. And we've tried using AI for transcripts for our shows. <laughs> and it's just a, a nightmare sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, AI is definitely getting better and the captioning technology looks like it's, you know, far, far, far further ahead than it is for tran transcriptions of spoken word. And I don't know, maybe that's just the services I've, I've tried, but, mm -hmm. you know, what is, what is sort of the skill set somebody needs to have to do um, a, a caption, a live caption? Uh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, I mean, essentially, you need to have uh, a quick mind. You need to be able to interpret what you're hearing um, and kind of quickly translate it into text. So you need to have the ability to be able to listen to somebody speaking and also write what they're saying at the same time. Um, you know, you need to have a good knowledge of current affairs. Um, it's far easier to interpret proper nouns when you're kind of familiar with, um, with them beforehand. Um, you need to be calm as well under pressure because it can get quite stressful when you're writing, you know, high profile programming live on the air and you know that people are, are watching mm -hmm. what you're doing. Yeah, I think those are probably the, uh, the fundamentals for, yeah. for a, a good captioner. Um, I mean, clearly, you need to be able to enunciate well um, and at speed as quickly as the software will allow. And often, um, a voice captioner isn't able to write quite as quickly as a very quick speaker. And so um, it's one thing being able to speak clearly, which is obviously important to get the, the most out of the software that we're using. but. Um, uh, occasionally some paraphrasing may have to come in so that you're able to still capture um, the main meaning within dialogue, uh, but perhaps editing just so that you're able to keep up with a quick speaker, which is perhaps one of the, um, I don't want to call it a drawback as such, but it's maybe less of a challenge for a stenographer who uh, typically can, can write at uh, you know, quicker speeds than a voice captioner can. Yeah, there is a limit to how quickly you can re-speak to Josh's point. With a, with a stenographer, they graduate from um, their the court reporting program at 225 words a minute, and they can caption at up to 300 words a minute. And you can't re-speak at that, that speed. So we often, we often will be quite selective in how we assign people. And so we will use our stenographers for really fast, multi-speaker type programming like panels and things like that, really fast live sports. Um, and and then you get a sort of higher higher translation, transcription rate in the verbatim. So how does the process work? Like let's say one of the broadcasters at 7 p.m. tonight is broadcasting, I don't know, Anne of Green Gables. Is your, like, do they, how do your captioners get assigned to a task? Well, we... We usually, we, we like um, sort of consistency in how we schedule people. So, and we mostly, the live stuff that we're doing is typically news, national, regional news, live sports, um, like political type commentary, mm -hmm. um, the live stuff. So something that is more of a episodic type program is, is usually done in a post-production way. Oh, okay. Right. So it's a pre-recorded and then, you know, the captions get inserted Right. Well before the time that they air. So for the live captioning, you know, if we have a particular region that we provide captioning for, the same captioner is always going to do the supper news for that particular region 
or the same group of captioners are. And so, um, you know, Josh can give you a little bit of insight in terms of what we do to prepare, but, you know, the news obviously is very fluid and changes. So there's a lot of front end research that has to take place um, before they actually get on the air and start captioning. So go ahead, Josh. Yeah. Um, when you're preparing for live programming, you need to be able to try and glean as much vocabulary as you think um, is likely to feature in a program as you can beforehand, because there's a there's a strong possibility that um, you'll you'll need to caption proper nouns that aren't already in your vocabulary database. Um, and without that um, kind of prior knowledge, you're going to go into a show, and um, you know you'll have to really scramble to kind of work around proper nouns, maybe you know omitting them altogether if you don't feel as if you can output them correctly spelled, um, which is obviously uh, not ideal. And as many was saying, given the the kind of fluidity of live news, particularly, it's uh, it's uh, a constant process of building your your dictionaries and your vocabulary to make sure that you're able to accurately transcribe things that you're hearing so then do you guys have like i just for example let's say cbc you're doing the the news at six o'clock and your captioner is doing the captioning do you have like a live feed that feeds back to cbc so the captioning shows up on the screen like, like how does that work we as captioners are able to connect directly to uh, a station's encoder okay. as it's known so we're listening actually we're listening to broadcasts slightly ahead of um, the rest of the viewing um, public um, and we are we're writing in real time sending those captions to a station in real time yeah, we're, so we are connected to a to, via a phone line directly into the audio source at the at the studio. Right. Okay. So we're getting that live feed, and then there is a delay. Obviously, when you're captioning, the captioner is listening to the audio, then they're sort of processing the information, then they're either getting it out through their mouth or the, through their hands. The software is processing the information, and then we're delivering it back to the to the station. Um, there's two ways to deliver the captions, um, either just a plain old telephone line, still old technology um, and analog type um, equipment on the broadcaster end um, or through the Internet, um, through different sort of encoders that receive uh, the data through the bits and bytes of the Internet into their um, their digital encoders. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just fascinating to me um, how that whole process seems to be it works like magic <laughs> it just it just appears on your screen right right so. and that i mean that technology is now 30 plus years old so uh, yeah it's awesome yeah i was going to ask a little bit about the technology because i'm also curious about it and how if it, if it has changed and in the places that it has and the technology has gotten better how much easier has it made the job or has it just made it different when we're using the, the internet-based method of sending captions to a station, uh, it's made connections, uh, I think, more reliable to stations. I mean, if you think about the, the sheer distance that uh, data, caption data is traveling over the, you know, the plain old telephone system, um, it's inevitable that there are going to be some connection issues from time to time. Uh, also, given that Phone lines are being upgraded all the time in various parts of the country. Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's from my perspective, that's one benefit of using the newer technology where we're using an internet connection. It does tend to be a little more reliable. Um, it, it's a quicker process as well to connect to a station. And that can be quite useful when we have multiple captioners trading off on one particular program where the switch is fairly instant. Um, on the on the telephone side, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit more involved, and it poses the, the potential for more connectivity issues. And that's the thing too that the when we use the phone lines to transfer um, caption data, it's just like in you know at the at the advent of the internet when we used to have to you know you'd hear that crackly 
high pitched tone where you, you knew you actually connected and you were on the internet and it was, right. you know, really slow. The speed isn't a problem because the, the caption data has to travel at a very slow baud rate. Um, so that's not changed. You know, the, the challenge to jo Josh's point is, is we get a lot of drops with telephone lines. And mm -hmm. so you, somebody might be watching captions on a live program and then they just stop. And it's because the line dropped, the captioner has to, you know, dial back in and it could take, you know, between 60, 60 seconds to two minutes before they can wow. actually get connection again. With internet, you're not, you don't see that. Um, right. You know, there's, there's always gonna be drops, but the drops are a lot shorter and they're a lot less frequent. The other challenge obviously is if our, and our captioners all work from home, or at least most of them do. And so they have home studios. And if they, you know, decide to move into a newer development or a new neighborhood, they don't have the ability, maybe they only have di digital lines and we can't transfer caption data through digital lines. It's really inconsistent and we get a lot of issues. So, you know, you're either using old copper lines and if you're in a neighborhood that actually still allows you to to get an old copper line, that's great. Or now we're starting to see a little bit more fiber and that works fine too. And in, and in terms of, of captioning historically, um, closed captioning has been a thing since I can remember. I feel like in a way people sort of take closed captioning for granted because it is so ubiquitous now. I mean, you just, you, everything is closed captions. And I'm just curious, could you, could you kind of give us an idea of, of how that beginning started and, and how it got to this point where they're just everywhere? In terms of broadcast captioning, uh, when, the stuff that you watch on television, it's mandated. So it's a regulatory obligation. It's a condition of a broadcaster's license that they have to provide closed captioning. And when captioning was first uh, started in in Canada anyways, it was a gradual uh, incremental increase from one year to the next as the, as the regulatory body, um, the CRTC, started requiring broadcasters to increase the amount of live captioning that they provided to the point now that they are obliged as a condition of their license to caption 100%. Um, and so whenever you turn on the TV, it has to have captions on it, whether it's a uh, you know, a taped program or it's live programming, the captioning has to has to be there. So that's sort of what drove um, closed captioning. Um, and that's why that's why it is so ubiquitous is because it's 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 the law. It has to be provided. It's an issue in terms of a human rights issue, an accessibility issue. Um, and the, one of the sort of challenges is it's not so much whether it exists or it doesn't exist, it's whether the quality is good enough for a viewer to actually be able to understand what they see. And in the, again, in the broadcast context, there's regulation around what level of quality should be expected. Um, in the digital world, it's that, it, that sort of standard doesn't exist. So if you were to watch a YouTube video, you may or may not get captions on it and you'll get auto captions, but you may not be able to make anything out of it because right. they're terrible. So that's the, sort of the distinction. Um, the, the what you see on the television, it's regulated. What you see streaming is not necessarily regulated. Yeah, and it's interesting because we recently had on a company that does descriptive audio for people who are blind and visually impaired, and it's only mandated that everything in prime time is described. Correct. So <laughs> I'm still waiting for the day that we get 100%. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, if they can do it with closed captioning, they should be able to do it with descriptive audio. You're right. right. And it'll come. It just may, it will. It yeah. may take some time. Can you tell us a little bit about the process or the differences between the offline um, captioning, web captioning versus real-time captioning? I guess we've talked a little bit about the, the live captioning piece. So... With post-production captioning, um, uh, basically we're doing the same thing. Um, there are some uh, perhaps differences in terms of what's expected on the post-production side of captioning where um, we are looking to always transcribe uh, a soundtrack verbatim. Um, and there's perhaps a little more attention to detail as far as uh, describing non-speech elements or any kind of 
flavor that needs to be added to um, the captions. Mm. Um, the, the syncing of text to video is um, completely aligned, whereas um, typically you, you don't see that in, in the broadcast environment. Um, and we, you know, we're working from pre-recorded video. So we have that kind of luxury of being able to re-listen to, to segments of dialogue to make sure that we are being 100% um, accurate. That's the challenge with live captioning is that you don't, you're basically listening to it in real time. You don't, right. you're guessing when a period might, you know, right. be most appropriate or where a comma. Sometimes you'll see these run on sentences because you don't know what the speaker's <laughs> about to say. And so you just keep, you know, transcribing um, and you might throw a comma in here and there, but you're not really sure where they're going. And where, whereas if you are listening to something in a post-production context, you can stop, rewind, listen to it again, go, well, is that exactly what it was? I'm not mm -hmm. sure what they said and I'm going to rewind and right. get it right. And so that's sort of, it takes a different, to Josh's point earlier, it takes a really different kind of person to be able to do live versus um, post-production because they really are thinking on the fly, trying to figure out where somebody's going um, paraphrasing as they need to paraphrase in order to make sure that the meaning for the viewer is is um, it is it replicates what is actually being said. Right, you're you're taking the time in post production to research anything that needs to be researched so that you have correct spellings. And with live captioning, um, you're doing the best that you can do either in advance of a program and sometimes on the fly as well, which is uh, possible for you know. Um, for really good captioners, um, but you know it does necessitate having to kind of avoid trying to write a proper noun that you don't know is um, you, you, have, you have the correct spelling for. And one of the other things that's different in post-production versus live is is how the captions display. So in live, you you typically will see a scroll like a, a two or three line roll up where the lines are constantly moving up and up and up. Whereas in post-production, you're going to see the captions sort of pop on in typically two-line format. And, you know, the other sort of benefit of post-production captioning is you can move your captions around and position them in a way that is meaningful, um, that doesn't obstruct somebody's mouth, because um, that's quite critical, that doesn't obstruct um, maybe other visuals that are, that are relevant. So that's the difference, too. And so if a broadcaster has... I don't know, just again, Anna Green Gables, and you're doing post-production work on that. Is it something that is, um, is that mandated that it has to be done, has to be provided? If it airs um, on, a, on a broadcast channel, then yes. Okay. Basically, the regulation goes to that if a broadcaster airs something on TV, if they also show it um, digitally, on their website, it also has to have the captions on that as well. Okay. Sorry, now, now I'm sort of thinking about this and I'm kind of curious about uh, stepping back to the, the real-time captioning. Um, does the type of event pose different challenges as well? Because I'm thinking that like something like a, a news broadcast where you have an anchor that is working from from a script and is reading off a teleprompter, I would think that that's fairly straightforward to be transcribing in real time versus something like, say, a sporting event where you're trying to follow something like a color commentator who's could be getting very excited or they could be like, you know, maybe their sentence structure isn't really clear mm -hmm. as to when it, it, it ends. Um, is that what you guys find? Is that, is that different events really require different types of, of transcribing skills? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you've hit the nail on the head for sure. Um, scripted versus unscripted dialogue. Uh, yes, absolutely. The scripted dialogue is typically easier to caption. I mean, it really depends on the anchor, let's say. I mean, we have, you have some anchors that will speak a lot quicker than other anchors, and maybe they have you know, a particular inflection that makes it difficult to understand them, although typically you shouldn't see that with, um, you know, with news anchors. But yes, on, on the sports side, um, for instance, you know, if you're captioning a team sport and you have um, you know, two teams with large rosters, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, proper noun 
uh, proper nouns to um, ideally memorize and also recognize pronunciations as well. If yeah. um, you know, you're talking about non-Anglo-Saxon names, yeah. um, you have different commentators that will pronounce the same name in a different way. And so you have to be able to kind of process that quickly and figure out what it is that, that somebody is talking about. Some color commentators, um, they get excited and it can be difficult to make out what they're saying. So yeah, for sure, that, <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that can be a challenge. One of the other things too is the, is the type of sport. So something like tennis, you know, we might put somebody who is a little bit more junior on because tennis is slow and then there's a lot of rallying where there's no speech and, and, and right. things like that. Something like hockey, which is probably one of the fastest Oof. sports out there, and commentators who just never stop talking. There's right. constantly sort of commentating play-by-play -play that's being spoken. And with play-by-play, -play, because there's typically, um, you know, a six-second lag before you actually see the captions, the play has already passed by the time the captions come up. And so our, our sports captioners uh, take that into context, and you can't, and this is what we've also heard from deaf and hard of hearing viewers is they don't actually like a lot of play-by-play -play because it's very distracting to actually watching the, the action. And so what they want to see is very selective play-by-play. -play. They want to hear the commentary. Um, they want more selective play-by-play -play because if, the, if all they're doing is reading the captions because hockey is that fast and you have to really focus, you don't, need, you don't actually get to watch the game. Right, and so right. a lot of viewers um, that are deaf or hard of hearing might actually prefer to just turn off the captions because they just want to see the actual the actual live action. But then they're missing out because they're not getting the commentary too. Wow. There's a real art to um, sports captioning, especially yeah. that kind of hockey type captioning, because you have to be again thinking well, what what's important to the viewer yeah. and what should I what should I edit out and what should I include. Yeah. So you're not only you're transcribing, you're editing on the fly as well. Right. And then you got to figure out how many O's are in goal. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But honestly, I mean, a lot of our captioners, most of them, the, the, the sports captioners anyways, are really passionate about sports. You know, we have some that are saying, you know, I'm living the dream. You know, I get to watch sports all day and get paid for it. So. <laughs> but I would think, too, that it's also, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, say, maybe um, – you know, a live press conference or, or a, a political speech or something um, and trying to transcribe that. And I'm just thinking about it's also a little bit different when you have when you're able to watch the speech being performed because um, you're able to pick up on sort of visual cues because, you know, when, when we speak, it's we speak in you know ways that's not necessarily real intuitive on how to translate that speech into um, you know, a, a transcription, which is, you know, what, you know, going back to what Ryan was talking about, when we try, have tried to transcribe the podcast, um, you know, it's just, it's gobbledygook because just, you know, we, we don't tend to, to speak when we're speaking conversationally. Um, we don't tend to speak in, in a way that, that lends itself to transcription. So I'm just wondering, does, does being able to sort of watch somebody make that process a little bit easier because you can pick on the the sort of the visual cues on okay there's a there's a, a you know a, an, a hard stop there you know or this is where like in terms of maybe the even just like the, the grammatical part of it yeah you're right but um part of the challenge for captioners is that actually we are hearing the the dialogue before we see it because we're getting uh, typically we're getting a, a feed an audio feed that comes straight from a studio or wherever it is. And so actually, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you, you can't really, you can't always use those kind of visual cues because the, the syncing isn't there. And sometimes the, the, uh, that kind of delay is you know, several seconds long. So you can use it to a point, but often it's, it's quite difficult. So let's move to the web. Um, I, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, I'm blind, so I don't even know if this exists. I'm assuming it does, or I hope it does. But with more and more services going streaming, Netflix, Hulu, Disney, Amazon, and so on, you know, are you guys involved in captioning for some of these streaming services? Not directly um, through, through sort of other contractors that have direct uh, contracts with those 
different platforms. There, there's some real sort of um, hoops that you go through with the Hulus and the Netflix, the Apple TVs of the world. Um, our, the bulk of our business is in the live context. That's where we have our expertise. We do do a, a fair amount of post-production, but it's a business unto itself to actually provide um, post-production captioning for the Netflix of the world. And you have to go through all sorts of different protocols to follow their styles um, and to sort of meet their, um, meet their requirements to be able to caption for them. So we might caption something for a broadcaster that ends up on Netflix right. and that's fine. Or we might work with a post-production company that actually ends up, their, their content is for Netflix, but we don't do directly say to Netflix. Okay. Now, when it comes to captioning and being a captioner, uh, how much training is involved? Well, it, it differs. Um... I think between stenography and, and voice captioning, I, I guess I'll I'll stick to the the voice captioning piece because that's sure. my my background. Um, I mean, it, it ranges sort of between eight and twelve weeks typically, and that's kind of based on us making sure that we pick the right candidate for for a trainee position. Um, but that's typically plenty of time to train somebody to the standard that they need to be at in terms of caption accuracy before we would feel comfortable in in putting somebody on live programming. And that's, and again, it's all relative to the programming too. So to Josh's point, in terms of our recruitment, our recruitment process is quite rigorous because we will put people through grammar, spelling tests, practical tests to see if they actually do have that sort of mental acuity, the, comp, the, the competencies. Um, just inherent in their abilities to be able to be good captioners. Um, so, and typically from in our recruitment program, we have a preference for people that have, uh, you know, a BA in English or linguistics or something like that. So that they already sort of, A, have an interest in language um, and B, also have some ability to, um, you know, know where to insert commas and exclamation points and periods and the like. But when we do take a new graduate, it's the same kind of duration as Josh is saying for voice captioners, typically between sort of eight to 12 weeks before we'll put them on the air. And then they start with very sort of simple, slow programming. And as they become more and more comfortable, we move them up as they, as they demonstrate ability, then we move them up into more challenging programming. So have you found the, the captioning industry has really grown? Um, I, I know that everything's been been mandated 100% um, for years, but what, what strikes me is that every year there just seems to be more and more content, more and more content. And so that means that much more to make sure is closed captioned. So um, have you found that? Have you found that the, the industry is just sort of growing ex exponentially along with that content? Um, maybe not exponentially. Certainly the broadcast in the broadcast content their context, it's sort of, it's saturated. So, you know, there's no more broadcast contents in terms of what you might see on the television. On the streaming side, you're absolutely right. It's just an explosion of content. The, the difficulty there is that um, it's really up to the, uh, the, the person who's putting the content on, whether they want captions or not that are legible. And so there's sort of not been that kind of exponential growth in terms of our business because some people are going, well, captioning costs as to our costs, we don't want to do it. Right. But then they're also not recognizing that they can expand their audience by providing good quality captioning because it's not just deaf and hard of hearing viewers that are making use of captioning. It's people that are learning English. Um, it's people who um, maybe want the volume off and they, I mean, oftentimes yep. late at night, I'll just turn the captions on and I'll turn the volume down um, because just that's what I want to do. And so it does expand the audience. And, and I think that people sort of haven't tapped into that where we're seeing a lot of growth really in this whole COVID environment is, is more um, in a private sector where people realize that there's a real benefit to say, well, certainly a lot of um, not-for-profit not organizations might put on Zoom events where they might have had a conference and they want captioning included. Right. Um, or even just, um, you know, private sector businesses that might have um, 
large meetings where some people might have difficulty hearing for whatever re reason and they want the captions. And then they also get the, tra the transcript of the event after the fact, which is certainly helpful and beneficial too. Well, I would I would think that the the same thing would would sort of apply, um, especially in in next September when universities are going to be back in in session and they're all going to be online. Um, I would think that things like being able to have have uh, a transcript of um, a, an online lecture is going to be very important. It, it can be. I don't know if the universities. Well, first of all, there's a funding issue because you know there's a question of whether or not they the universities could afford to actually have yeah. all their um their courses captioned but then on that on the other side it's they may not want that because students just won't even go and they'll just pull the yeah. uh, they'll just pull the transcript off and and you know read it after the fact which i don't think is necessarily a bad thing but a lot of it has to do with the funding model certainly right. um deaf and hard of hearing students that have the need i i'm pretty sure that there is sort of funding that that comes hand in hand with that and when we do provide captioning in the lecture setting for universities, um, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm pretty certain it's funded sort of right. through the government. So here, here's my $20 question for you. What would it cost me to hire a captioner to caption our podcast and pr provide a transcript on a weekly basis? <laughs> for you, we'll give you, we'll give you the discount. No, it's, um, <laughs> it, it, it varies. And again, it sort of varies in terms of, um, what the, what the scope and breadth of what you want. If you want just a straight live caption, you know, the rates range anywhere from in the $100 range. Right. Um, and again, oftentimes it's how much, if you provide more volume, you might get a better rate. Sure. Um, if it's more complicated and there's more prep, the rate may, may vary. It's, it's in that sort of range. Right. And it depends too, if after the, um, after the live podcast, whether or not you want something that's been cleaned up, um, and you can take that caption file and then, you know, upload it into your video and you're going to have perfect captions mm. instead of as captioned captions, which may be a little bit less than perfect, still good, but not certainly not verbatim. It's got to be better than the AI we've tried. <laughs> I, I can assure you it would be better than that. Yeah. <laughs> but actually to step back to that, actually, I'm, I'm curious about um, the, uh, the software, because um, I want to talk about that too, because that's another technology that is always evolving. I mean, certainly, you know, I remember playing with sort of something like Dragon Naturally Speaking 10 years ago, and then doing it again, you know, five years ago, and it was a very, very different technology, very much better. Are you guys finding that? Do you find that that particular type of technology is always getting better? And where does that particular service sort of lend itself well to? It's getting better in the recognition. It's not, I think it's still sorely lacking in, I don't know how to put it, Josh, in terms of the comprehension. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the, the software may do a better job than it used to in terms of translating the word, but not the context. Right. Right. So what, I mean, what kind of events um, does, is it good for? Well, we were talking about um, scripted versus unscripted dialogue earlier. Um, it tends to do better with clear um, speakers kind of speaking at a, at a, at a regular cadence. Uh, sometimes accents, a strong accents can cause uh, problems for AI. Um, yeah. It doesn't like crosstalk, so it likes one speaker at a time. Um, background noise. Background noise, it, I mean, it, it doesn't do, as far as I'm aware. And, you know, when you put all that together, that's not many program types, honestly. I mean, it, it, right. I can see that it has an application in, in certain settings where you have all of those kind of parameters. Um, but yeah, it's very kind of linear in that way. And that's the challenge too with something like a live um, news program. If you have an anchor sitting at a desk, just speaking, like Josh said, at a regular cadence, the, trans the translation rate will be quite good. But the minute they go to the person on the street, all of a sudden it falls apart. And so 
trying to predict, you know, in in the live news context, whether or not, you know, speech recognition software is going to do great today or this minute, because five minutes from now, something's going to be different and it won't do very well, right. which is why, you know, you still have live operators, live captioners for providing captioning for news. So, right. and I can't see, I can't see automated speech recognition ever working for um, live sports. No, <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. I, I'm amazed that, that even a, a human can do it, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a rare talent. And, you know, some people don't, don't make it through our training program because ultimately they just find it too taxing and they just can't, they can't think that way. Would you be willing to share one of your sports captioners with us so we can maybe get them on an episode later on? Oh, yeah. I have, I have, a, guy, I have a guy in mind who would love it, yeah. I'm sure. Okay, great. Great. <laughs> he's he's probably he's he's actually one, our most senior um, sports captioner, and I often joke that if he ever lost audio, he could just keep captioning because <laughs> he's he's a natural born commentator. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. Um, well, guys, uh, is there anything that we missed that you guys want to talk about? I mean, a lot of I think the only thing I would say is that that um, it's the it's the viewers, it's the deaf and hard of hearing community that really have to push the change on the digital side, because I do think it, the quality is really sorely lacking and it really is, um, it's a problem, especially since more and more uh, content is available digitally. And, you know, they're not, they're not getting, they're not getting the quality that they deserve and that they should be sort of pushing for some sort of regulation and mandate on that front as well. Yeah. Well, I guess what is encouraging as, as well, if, if there are, signs of encouragement is that studies are uh, supposedly now showing that um, people uh, tend to watch videos um, without the sound on, particularly in the, the social media world. Um, so young people in particular, and they are using closed captions, albeit probably automatic, uh, automatic speech recognition um, yeah. captions. And um, studies are also showing that viewership of videos online increases when you have closed captions um, alongside the video. So that's, that's good to see. Yeah. You know, that is really interesting and it's, and that's a really good point to make. Um, you know, we find that we've, we've been talking a lot about, uh, about the, the blind side of this and audio description of lately. And that's exactly the, the position that the, the blind community is in is that they have to really make noise at the right people and, and really say, look, this is something that we, we really want and need. And closed captioning has always been one of those great examples of a technology that came out of um, the need for accessibility, the, the need to, to, you know, to provide content for folks who are, are, are deaf of heart and hard of hearing. But it really entered the mainstream because people found all these uses for it. Like, you know, have, having, being able to have a TV playing CNN in an airport and not have the sound on and still understand what's being, being, um, what's going on. And the same thing for audio description, you know, you can have the TV on and be in the kitchen and doing something and you can just have the audio description on as well. And you're not missing anything. So I think that that's a really key component is getting that mainstream audience on board as well and and having them really find the value in something i think that that's where things really pick up i mean that and just out and out mandating everything which works great too as we can as we see in in closed captioning but you know i think that both communities are kind of in the same place and at the end of the day yeah they just they need to make their voices heard um in order to bring about this change I agree. It's yeah. really, and it's really, uh, you know, it's a critical time right now, even with the, you know, the, the, the situation we find ourselves in with the pandemic, it's, it's a, it's a great opportunity to really drive those kinds of issues too, because the news is so critically important, whether right. they, they're accessing it on their, you know, mobile device or their computer, or they're watching it on TV. I mean, it's so critical that you get accurate information these days. Um, okay, well, listen, uh, if, if if anybody is interested in captioning, where can people find you guys? So our, our uh, website is um, www.natcapcan.ca. So it's the first three letters of each word of our company name, National Captioning Canada. 
So www.natcapcan.ca and um, there's a contact section that they can just um, apply through there um, and also other contact information in terms of phone, phone numbers and, and the like. We also have an ongoing Indeed posting for a voice captioner trainee position. So if anybody mm -hmm. feels that they have a good skill set, uh, they're more than welcome to apply through Indeed. All right, guys. Well, listen, thanks so much for, for taking the time out and, uh, and chatting with us. It's, it's really been interesting. Yeah, it was great. our pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a great okay, day. Thanks a lot. You too. Oh, that was good. That was, that was actually really interesting. There's a yeah. lot of... I thought it would be because there's, it, there's so much to it, like just digging through their website and then you think about how long it's actually been around and the evolution of it. You know, it really gives me hopes for descriptive audio, but I really hope it doesn't take 30 years to get to the point where closed captioning is. <laughs> I think, you know, honestly, it, from from the example of the broadcast medium versus the digital medium, mm -hmm. I think it really, it's all about the mandating. Yeah. Um, I think that that's how you get 100% coverage is you just, you have to mandate it. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that, that, you know, content producers are just going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And they probably won't even do it, you know, if it means increasing their audience somewhat. You know, they have to really see a real, you know, rate of return yeah, on I mean, that type of thing. But and especially I think that the in a way from the sounds of it, the software kind of hurts, hurts more than it helps in some ways, because I think that for especially for a digital content producer, they might just go, oh, you know what? let's just do it just use the the software and yeah. have like kind of half-assed captions yeah. is better than actually paying for someone to do high quality captions and so that's where you get this sort of captioning but it's it's, it's pretty yeah you know i ran one of our podcasts through a transcription software this morning and you know the accuracy is really really poor or i could pay somebody whatever a hundred dollars and get probably 99 to 100% accuracy, yeah. right? It all just depends on, on really, I think, your audience and what you're trying to get, get out to them. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, and you know, some content isn't necessarily going to need 100%. No. Um, you know, even you know, if cats, it does get 60, cats 70%. stuck in a tree chasing a squirrel doesn't need to be 100%. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you're right. Like, it, you know, especially something like a podcast is particularly challenging because, you know, again, we don't, we're not working from a script. We don't speak in really clipped, right. calculated sentences. That's just not how the, the art of conversation goes. So it's a lot harder for a software to be able to parse out, um, uh, conversation, you know, in a way that's, that's logical where there's, you know, real hard stops to the end of the sentences and, you know, or even to, to differentiate between different speakers, right? That's none of that stuff software is going to be able to do. Well, exactly. And spelling, you know, I'm sure if we were to hire a trans, some, a transcriber, you know, they would ask, well, how do you spell this word or this name? Or how do you pronounce this word or this name? Right. Cause you know, the, the name Steven, isn't always spelled with a V, right? It could be PH. It, it, there's a lot of different variables when it comes to English in, in and of itself, let alone any other languages. Well, you know, and even, you know, we were talking about sporting events and, and they talked about hockey, but I would think that soccer would be a nightmare to try to transcribe as well because you think of not only just, it, it's a fairly fast-paced sport as well, but then, you know, it's international, and so you've got all kinds of last names that are like, mm -hmm. you know, who knows how to spell Zavolinsky or, <laughs> you know, Zavalov, or it's good luck with that. So I, I can't imagine that the talent of, of these transcribers, um, you know, they, I could see how it can take real, like, years and years of, of working at it to really, you know, be on your game in terms of transcribing some sort of a live sporting event. Yeah. No, I'll definitely reach out to Melina and see if we can get a captioner on the show because I think that'd be an interesting, interesting talk as well. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to apply yeah. <laughs> for transcribe. I don't think, I don't think I have the mindset or the uh, personality for that. It sounds a little bit too high pressure for me. Plus, I hate sports. So, well, it's funny. Well, you wouldn't have to do sports, but when Josh was saying, you know, a BA in English, I was, I was going to jump in and say, well, Rob's got, Rob's got oh, it. No, thank you. <laughs> Plus, you, gotta, you know how fast you have to be able to type? 
<laughs> I can I can do okay, but I'm still like I was never trained in typing, so I'm still like one finger. Well, and it wouldn't be keyboard typing; it would be stenography, right? Oh, it's yeah, gonna well, be good luck with that. <laughs> I've seen those keyboards. I can't. I don't know what the hell those are. That's right, symbols and curly cues. Yeah, forget it. <laughs> yeah. Forget it. Um. Well. That's it. That's all we got. Yeah. It would be. It would be. Yeah. What? Damn it. Oh, I was just thinking, man. It'd be nice if we can get audio description to that to that point. Yeah. But, uh, anyways, hey Ryan, Rob, uh, where can people find us? Online at www.atbanter.com. They can also drop us an email if they so desire at cowbell at atbanter.com. That's right. Man, you got you got that cowbell today. What's that? You're ready for it. I was. They can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if they so desire. Yep, they sure can. Um, all right, well, I think if that is everything, all our housekeeping as well, um, then that is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. Big thanks, of course, to Melina and Josh from National Captioning Canada. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 